Welcome to Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national stories focusing on news, politics, and current events. Now, the latest edition of Update One. I'm Viola Ginger, a member of the National Press Club's podcast team. Today, I'm speaking with journalist and lawyer George Serpong. He serves as executive secretary of the National Media Commission in Ghana, one of the most stable and democratic countries in Africa and an important partner for the United States and many others. Ghana transitioned to multi-party democracy in 1992. Just over two years ago, Ghanaians elected a human rights lawyer as president, unseating the incumbent. Freedom House gives Ghana a score of 83 out of 100 on its Index of Freedom, Political Rights, and Civil Liberties. Reporters Without Borders ranked Ghana first in Africa in 2018 in its World Press Freedom Index and 23rd globally, ahead of France, the United Kingdom, and the United States. So clearly we in the United States have lessons to learn, George. And that's why the murder in January of investigative journalist Ahmed Hussein Suwale in the capital Accra shocked not only Ghana, but the world's journalism community. The National Press Club called for a thorough investigation and urged Ghanaian officials to ensure that journalists can work without the threat of violence. We'll talk more about that case shortly. Before joining the National Media Commission, George organized programs for the defense of journalists at the Media Foundation for West Africa. He also founded a youth network to train young Ghanaians in leadership and good governance, and a forum to foster peaceful cooperation among young people from different political parties. George just completed a five-month fellowship at the National Endowment for Democracy in Washington, D.C., He spent the time researching Africa's transition from analog to digital broadcasting and the implications for freedom of expression and access to information. He particularly looked at the role of the Chinese government in African media and in digital migration. George, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you very, very much for this opportunity, and I love it here. You guys are doing a great job here. Thank you. So you've had a chance to experience the political and media scene in Washington and in the United States generally during your fellowship. What has been the most surprising discovery to you about news media in the United States? The surprising part is very specific. The legitimate concerns about what our colleagues consider as threats on media freedom and media responsibility. But my surprise is that they don't talk much about the resilience that journalists in this country and in the DC area are resp- with which they are responding to do those things that they consider as threats. I do not hear much about the resilience of your institutions in dealing with those threats that people have identified. But it is also for a very positive uh, feel for me because what it means is that Uh, You guys are not taking anything for granted. There's no complacency. And you strongly feel that any threat on media freedom needs to be pushed back. If I'm to talk about anything that has surprised me, I'll just repeat that whilst you recognize the threats, you appear to be quiet and silent over your own strength, over the level of commitment that I see from journalists in the U.S. and uh, some major uh, institutions within the country in standing up 
uh, for the defense of media rights. Yeah. And when you say resilience, what, what, can you give an example of that? So, so many of them. But let's just be general here. And uh, as a visitor, I'm very cautious in making direct political statements, but it demands that. I have seen specific instances where the White House, for example, decides that they don't want a particular journalist to cover the White House. The news media stands up to the White House. Colleagues in the profession rally behind uh, uh, CNN. They rally behind the journalist. The CNN goes to court, and the court says, well, unfortunately, you may not like him, but it's not about what you like. It's about openness in the society, and therefore he has a right to do his work. That is marvelous. And the discussion over this issue and how almost every journalist looked at it, and look at a situation where, sincerely, this is a country, this is a city that has considerable competition both within the profession, even at individual levels, and also as business. But this is one moment where everybody says, no, it's not about competition. It's not about the individual involved. It's about the principles. And all of you bunch together so impressively. And I think these are signs that free expression will survive in the U.S. regardless of anything that you see as threat. I distinguish between personal frustrations, personal injury, and irritations from real threats. When I look at the resilience and the strength with which and the commitment with which you people put to it, I am convinced that what you are seeing today that worry all of you would not last and that ultimately freedom would be maintained. That's uh, really good to hear and it's great to have that, that perspective, that fresh perspective. Let's go to Ghana now. Tell me a little bit about the National Media Commission, um, where you're going to be returning as executive secretary. I understand it oversees some 360 radio stations, 80 registered newspapers, 25 television channels, and various online publications. How much and what kind of regulatory power does it have, briefly? Okay. The regulatory power is a very interesting discussion in Ghana. People describe us as a, a toothless bulldog, and uh, we love it sincerely, only because historically we had experienced a situation where military government after military government had completely repressed the media. So when we were coming into constitutional rule, one of the things that the framers of the constitution thought of was that we required a free, independent, and responsible media to sustain our democracy. And therefore, the regulatory system that we create must facilitate rather than constrain media freedom. So the first constitutional mandate of the commission is to promote freedom and independence of the media. Then the added on is also to ensure responsible practice. So the commission's own approach to doing its work has been an approach that promotes more freedom. If the commission is to err, we would rather err on the side of freedom. And we know that that irritates some people, particularly within the politics of our country. And increasingly, we are moving towards a, a dual 
political system that's quite close to the division that you see in the U.S. Uh, between the political parties. So public reaction towards our work depends on whose party is in government and how they think the media are attacking their government and how they see the media commission's uh, role in either responding to those attacks or creating space for those attacks to continue. So there's been a kind of swing between the political parties and their supporters in terms of their attitude towards us. If party A is in power, party B is happy that the commission is supporting the media to be free and to be active. But members of party A are not happy that their government comes under attack and the commission doesn't intervene. And the same thing happens when there's a reverse. So sincerely, this is where we are. But we strongly think that society is best protected by erring on the side of freedom. What do you see as one of the biggest issues for media freedom in Ghana? Today, it appears to me that it is professionalism uh, that creates the biggest threat, the lack of it, because it creates the easiest excuse for public support for media uh, restrictions of media freedom. Afrobarometer recently released data that suggested that almost 60% of the people uh, would support government intervention and restriction Mm. in media freedom. And drilled down, it is mainly because of what they see as their frustration with irresponsible media practice. It is also some conflated understanding of uh, social media and uh, concerns about misinformation on social media. But at the core of it is also the you know, discomfort that people who support political parties and political systems feel when they think their candidates and their parties come under attack and there is nothing to help them. And it cuts across the two key political parties. The good thing, though, is that we do not think that at the level of government and at the level of the political parties, uh, they see any attempt on any attempt towards restricting media freedom as politically correct. So we do not envisage that there is going to be any serious political backlash against media freedom in Ghana. Okay, interesting. And, and Afrobarometer that you mentioned is a, a major polling operation, as I as I understand. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. Part of your research at the National Endowment for Democracy has been about the role of China in African media. What What's the most interesting finding that came from your research about that? I would not use the word interesting. I know the context within which you use interest. And for me, it's worrisome. It is the reality that today as we sit, the totality of communications infrastructure on the continent is essentially controlled by people whose own values at home do not support the kind of values that we are seeking to build in Africa. So in the migration from analog to uh, digital broadcasting, for example, most of the countries have sublet their, uh, we call it the digital terrestrial uh, television platforms, to a particular Chinese company called Star Times. To be sure, I'm not against any country investing in Africa because Africa really needs investment. And I don't think that any person anywhere seeking to do legitimate business anywhere in the world should be frustrated. The case that I'm concerned about is that you have companies 
whose relationship with the political system at home is, to say the least, unclear. You have companies whose track record on their continent does not suggest that they take free expression uh, seriously. In the case of the switchover from analog to digital, what is happening on the continent is that uh, primarily because we need to take spectrum away from broadcasters in order to apply it to other services. And second, because the cost of constructing the uh, terrestrial platforms are expensive, all across our countries, governments are building the platforms as monopolies. So you have one system that everybody is transmitting their content through. It therefore becomes a choke point that if anybody took hold of that, then you can't broadcast. And that is the facility that we are handing over to the Chinese. And that is why I think that their own values and political attitudes at home uh, should be considered in terms of how we give them this massive power uh, to determine whose ideas reach the public sphere, because by controlling the platform, they then sit at the gateway of public communication with the capacity to become the ultimate censor. And I think that requires discussion. That's interesting. And are there any potential competitors to the Chinese for such a massive undertaking? I have counted physically about 21 countries on the continent where the Chinese company Star Times is the supplier and government partner in building the platform. But at least there are two or three places that uh, are not by the uh, uh, Chinese, which suggests that there are other suppliers uh, in the market. When I say I have counted 21, it does not mean that it is only 21. That is what I have been able to confirm. So there are a number of countries that I'm not, uh, I'm still researching into which companies are providing uh, the digital terrestrial platform, it is possible that the number could go higher. Hmm. But this is technology that is available that does not require essentially uh, one country's supplier to take the totality of the... The other side that should be of concern to us in Africa is that this is basic technology. So it gets to a point where interoperability becomes an issue. How you connect your TV station's output to that platform depends on the nature of the technology that the owner of the platform decides. If they become the clear monopolies that they are becoming, and over a period constrain the system such that only those using Chinese broadcasting technology can connect to their system, that certainly would become an issue. So there is a certain degree of transparency that we need to bring to the discussions about exactly where we are going and uh, how we safeguard the right to free expression as we transit to digital broadcasting. Let's turn very briefly now to the really tragic case of um, the, the murder of Ahmed Hussein Suwale. You were here in the United States when that occurred in January. He was shot to death as he was driving home in Accra. He had said last fall that he feared for his life because a politician made threatening comments and urged other people to attack him. His work for an investigative news service helped lead to a lifetime ban for a member of the Council of FIFA, the world soccer governing body. And he also had been a former head of the Ghana Football Association, that is the uh, FIFA member. What effect has this 
killing had on other journalists in Ghana. First of all, just a little clarification. I think you you put the facts so right, but just some little clarification so that uh, our listeners can understand. The politician who Ahmed says had threatened him is not the same as the uh, football person who had suffered as a consequence of Ahmed's work. Thank you, yes. So Mm -hmm. uh, that in itself creates two lines of interest. But what I would want to be very cautious about is that because we don't know who killed him, because we don't know the killer as yet, it is therefore difficult to establish motive. If we found the killer, then we could understand why he killed uh, uh, Ahmed in this tragic manner, and then we could decide whether it is connected with his work or not connected with his work. So at this stage, I'm careful. However, it appears to me that the behavior of the politician who issued the threat has showed how Ghanaian society first abhors violence, but also supports independent journalism. The public outcry against those comments and the outpouring of support for uh, Ahmed and the family and his colleagues in the Tiger IPI team has been overwhelming. But the reality is that Ahmed is dead. Whilst we do not know the killer and therefore we do not know the motive, it also suggests to us that we cannot close any line of inquiry, which means that his active investigation of corruption could also be the reason why our colleague was killed. Mm. I get a sense that the Ghanaian authorities are seriously looking at it. I'm hoping that we find the killer. But as uh, chilling as this could be on the media in Ghana, I get a certain sense of renewal that people would not allow the death of Ahmed to go unrewarded in terms of the continuation of his work. I think most people in the profession, again, even as we try to establish who killed him and the motive, most journalists strongly associate the murder with his work. And you hear comments from the profession suggesting that people won't be cowed by these kinds of incidents. So it is tragic, it is painful, but the lesson that we can learn is that Ahmed's death is going to inspire a greater commitment to media freedom and the media inquiry into public affairs. That's heartening to hear. And uh, the National Press Club obviously is is uh, with all of you and trying to uh, address this and trying to, to uh, make that a reality. Thank you very much, George. Our guest has been George Serpong, a journalist and lawyer who is executive secretary of the National Media Commission in Ghana. We've been discussing media freedom in Ghana and in the United States, the shocking case of the January murder of an investigative journalist in Ghana that prompted an appeal for justice from the National Press Club, and we discussed China's effect on media in Africa. George, thanks for helping us understand a very important part of the world that we don't get to talk about often enough. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And I truly also 
love the opportunity to have been here. Maybe let me use your medium also to thank the American taxpayer for funding my trip here for the learning that I got. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Viola Ginger in the National Press Club in Washington. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Update One, a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Committee. You can comment on this show or any episode of Update One by going to facebook.com slash pressclubdc or on Twitter at pressclubdc. Thanks for listening to Update One.